the Building Abundant Success series. We just heard Les Elgard's original theme to the 50s television show, Bandstand. My guest started dancing on Bandstand at age 13. He is broadcast pioneer, Jerry Blavitt. Jerry Blavitt, you only rock once is his book, and I just read it. It's awesome. He's featured in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well as the Broadcast Pioneers Hall of Fame. For 50 years, he's been uh, doing his brand of oldies, and his own television shows, and you've seen him featured in movies. Yearly, he gives all these events at the Kimmel Center, and you can hear him on his radio shows, WVLT, as well as at his own club in Margate, New Jersey, called Memories. Jerry and I are coming at you right now. Good morning. How are you, Sabrina? I'm sorry, I was just running in. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. I'm, I'm just waking up. <laughs> could hear it in your eyes and in your throat. <laughs> yeah, I'm a night owl. So am I, my love. Yeah. I get it at 4 or 5 in the morning, for 6 in the morning on weekends, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the book, and I wanted to interview you not only about your life, but, you know, some of the highlights in the book that I think that our, our listeners would uh, love to know about. Well, whatever you want to know. <laughs> hey, that's great. Uh, first of all, how's the weather? I'm not in, in Philadelphia today. How's the weather there? Where It's beautiful today. It's going to be 76 degrees. I'm going to put you right on speaker. Hold on, my. That's cold. Can you hear me now? <laughs> I can hear you fine. It, 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 yeah, that's pretty- cold compared to where I'm at. We're, we're supposed to be in the no- upper 90s. Oh, where are you where it's over 90? Um, in, in Atlanta. Oh, you're in Atlanta. Yeah, today I'm in Atlanta. Uh-huh. Well, say hello to my girl, Gladys Knight, if you see her. Oh, great, yes. I love Gladys. I love Gladys. And her, her brother, um, Merald. Who? Her brother's name is Merald, M-E-R-A-L-D. Oh, okay. So now you know that. Bubba. She calls him Bubba. Bubba. Yes. Bubba Knight. Yeah, they're, they're the only two left of that group, right? Gladys yes. Knight and the Pips? Well, you know, basically she's doing a solo now. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's doing a solo now. She's solo, okay. That's great. Um, I wanted to start the interview with uh, life there in Philadelphia because I think that's an interesting dynamic. I, I, I mean, I, there's so many different highlights in the book. And I also wanted to get into the wellness issue that you had growing up and your, your your quest of, uh, you know, exercising and whatnot. We're totally into that in this show. <laughs> uh, l- l- let me say something. You know, God gives you one body and one mind. Uh, I've learned at a very early age, for me to do what I do, I, I, I am a physical entertainer. I'm on stage from the moment I get on to the moment I get off. Three to four hours on the weekends from 8 o'clock to 2 o'clock in the morning. So physically, I've got to be in shape. Uh, and I always, from an early age, because I was a skinny kid, uh, always was into bodybuilding. And now going on 78, I still do basically what I've always done. I ride my bike. Uh, I get up in the morning. I do maybe 20 minutes uh abdomen stretching and stuff of that nature and then I ride my bike and I, I really watch some t- I watch what I eat also that's important it's vital I grew up in the children's hospital system so I I know you only get one life <laughs> and remember what I've said youth is a gift of nature age is a work of art wow that's profound that's and, really profound you know, but I, I have been blessed because at an early age, if you read in the book, coming from a broken family, uh, a lonely kid, 
because me and my sister would be in day nursery every day while the other kids, you know, would be out playing in, in school or in the streets. I'd be, you know, in day nursery because my mother had to get a job as a riveter during the Second World War. Uh, wow. So I used to listen in my grandmother's house when they would take my, they would pick us up after day nursery and we would go to my grandmother's house to have dinner because my mother couldn't cook because she was in work all day. But I remember my grandmother having this big radio console. And the Capuanas, which was my mother's maiden name, uh, were in the ice business and the coal business. So they did very, very well. And they had, they had a TV before most people had it in the neighborhood. And uh, they had this big radio. And I would fool around with the dial and I would hear the shadow and the Lone Ranger. And then I came across a Indian radio serial called Straight Arrow. And it tweaked my imagination how this was a Comanche warrior who was a rancher by day and he would go into this cave. And the same people who created the Lone Ranger created this series on radio. Uh, and he would come out as a, an Indian garb and he rode a horse fury. And, you know, on radio you would hear the imagination where he would say, Kaniwa Fury! You know, out of the cave comes the magnificent Comanche war chief. You know, doing la di da da And it just tweaked my imagination. And I wanted to learn more about Indians. And up on McKean Street, there was a, 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 a candy store, a soda shop, where they sold comic books. And uh, I would go in there, and it was a wonderful woman. We used to call her Jew Sarah. But back then, it wasn't derogatory, okay? And right. she liked me, and I would go to the comic book section and I would look for classic comic books where they would have actual stories The Three Musketeers Robinson Crusoe uh, uh, you know uh, stories Black Hawk who was a Ness Pierce Indian whatever tribe and I was so interested in Indians because of the freedom that they had and Straight Hour was sponsored by Nabisco and if you bought Nabisco, they would have cards inside the cereal where you would collect cards where they would tell you about the Native American Indians, the Comanche, the Sioux, the Apache, the Arapaho, the Pawnee, uh, the Iroquois Nation. And that tweaked my imagination. I always wanted to be that freedom that they had. I loved that freedom that the Indian had. And then after we would get done eating... We would go to the other house, which was a, a bookie house, at 1906 South Bancroft Street. And there, there, my mother had a little transistor radio, and I would hear music, and I loved music. And during the summertime, my mother, after, after day nursery, she would ship us off to the YMCA camp up in Downingtown. Uh, it was the YMCA and you for the summer you'd be in camp and I remember having a little transistor radio listening to music in my bunk bed so between the music and I loved music and, and the, my, my love for the Native American Indian I, I had something going on as an early at an early age and when we would come back from camp uh there was always music in the Italian household. And New Year's they'd be dancing and, and you know, always dancing, always if there was a party. Because back then, my grandmother and grandfather had seven kids. And they all lived around the same neighborhood. They lived maybe a block away or two doors away. So on the weekends, they would always be on Sunday. You would always have the big dinner and they'd be playing music and I'd be dancing with my mother. And I was a pretty good dancer when I was like 9, 10, 11 years old. But when I went to camp, I used to be the horse riding instructor when wow. I was 12 years old. Because that's how much I knew about the Native American Indian and the horse which was their survival. And so that's the way it all began. 
So music and my love for the Native American Indian, the freedom that they had until we took it away. And I would never let anyone in my career take away my passion or my freedom for me to play the music that I wanted to share with an audience. Because music is meant to share. Music speaks for the things as a kid growing up you felt, but you didn't know how to express yourself. So the music spoke for the way you felt. I only have eyes for you when you went out with a girl, or you belong to me, which she would call up for dedication, you know, or since I don't have you, you know, or Earth Angel, or in the still of the night, I think of you. So that's how it all began, and what happened was that my uncle sang with a group, and you find it in the book, and he was on bandstand in 1953. And it's the first time it was mandatory that we had a look at bandstand with all my cousins and all my aunts because my uncle was going to be on bandstand. And it's the first time that I saw kids dancing on TV. And wow, I said, you know, I can dance just like that. And they all gave me a, a, a bad look. Like, don't open your mouth. You know, but my Aunt Mim looked at me and smiled as if to say, I know you can do that. So what happened, I found Bandstand and I was on the corner with the guys, I was 13 years old, and I said, listen, and up the street lived a girl by the name of Joe Mizzou, who used to go to Bandstand. So I, I, I said to her, I want to come on Bandstand. She said, well, you got to be 14. I said, well, we'll, we'll give it a shot. I'll try and sneak in. <laughs> So I went up with the guys, Joe Pambini, uh, who lived two blocks away from me. I lived, the house was 1906 South Bancroft Street. And there was a line outside. But what I did is with Joe Pambini, I saw where the cameramen were going, in the back, to go into the studio. So we snuck into the back. And when I went into the studio, where the bandstand was actually being telecast, there was a jitterbug contest. Joe Mizzou was there. I got her, and we got into the contest, and I won the contest. Now I went back every day. Two weeks later, they had another contest. I won that. Meanwhile, I'm getting fan mail, and in the neighborhood, I'm like a celebrity. I would come back from bandstand and all the neighbors would say, we saw you dancing on bandstand, you were terrific. You know, I was like a little 13-year-old, <laughs> whatever you call a star in the neighborhood. And what happened next was that Bob Horn, who was the host of bandstand before Dick Clark, found out that I was not 14. So he oh, called me on the side and said, listen, this is the deal. We can't say you can't come in. You're popular. You're getting fan mail. You're one of the best dancers. You can't get into any more dance contests because they'll think if you win another one, it's going to be fixed. He said, but... Oh, no. Yes, yes, this is true. It's in the book. So he said to me, but I'll tell you what we're going to do. What time do you get out of school? By this time, I was a... Uh, I, I was a go, just going uh, coming up. I was a sophomore, all right. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Well, I get out at two fifteen from Bishop Newman." He said, "Can you be up here at three o'clock because the show went on at three thirty?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "Okay, we're going to pay you fifteen dollars a week to be the head of the committee where you will select the dancers." Now, when you watch bandstand, there was always kids in the bleachers. But when you went out the commercial, you would rotate the kids that were on the dance floor with the kids in the bleachers. But there, oh, wow. were, but the, but there were committee members, though, and I was the head of the dance committee, that you would keep as regulars because these were the popular kids that were getting fan mail. So that's one of my duties. My other duty was to pick out three records every day where they would rate the record. Bob Horn would play it. Do you like it? I can dance to it. I, I, I like the lyric. I like the song. And I started to give him 
the real records, Little Richard doing Tutti Fruity. So he would say to me, well, wait, Pat Boone, Dot Records gave me Pat Boone's record. I said, yeah, but that's not the real song. He said, well, they got national distribution. I said, Bob, play the real records. Georgia Gibbs made Tweedledee D. Laverne Baker had the original record. So all of a sudden, Bob Warner's playing the original records. You see what happened back in the day with the record business? All of the major labels had, mm-hmm. had distribution nationally. All of the little labels would come out with the original song. And if it was selling in Detroit or Chicago or Philadelphia, the national labels, RCA, Columbia, would cover it with their stars, with their recording artists. Okay. Well, Bob Horn played Ain't It a Shame by Fats Domino, not by Pat Boone. He played Shaboom by the Chords, not the Crew Cups. So all of a sudden, Bob Horn is the first guy on TV playing the original records other than the black disc jockeys playing, because this was black music at that time. And and another thing, that another one of my duties was that whenever there was a guest star, the show would go on at 3.30, I would be in Bob's office to greet the guest star and say, come into the studio. Now, when Bob says we have company, that's where you go. And I would jitterbug, okay, until, until Bob said, we have company. And I would get off to the floor, and I would go to Perry Como and Tony Bennett, and I'd say, that's where you're supposed to be. That's where the camera's going to hit you. So I did that one day, and I'm jitterbugging, and this little black fella, who's a guest, and I say, you have to hit that spot. He says, well, where did you learn how to dance like that? I said, everybody in South Philly dances. We want to impress the girls. He said to me, right? you're like a white maid. I looked at him. This is 1954 now. <laughs> I said, what? It was Sammy Davis Jr. Wow. And we became friends from 1954 until the day he died, May the 16th, 1990. And that's how my career began. Now, when Bob... Now you, you, you started in um, an area we're talking about. Uh, segregation still going on in the mid fifties, uh, in mid to late fifties, and so oh, yeah. you're saying that Bob Horn, you would help Bob Horn to realize that there were original songs exactly. recorded by African American or Black artists at that time. Now, was was bandstand integrated at that time? No, because what happened. In the early days of bandstand, not that they would have been turned away, but the black kids all lived in neighborhoods, like the Italians lived in an Italian neighborhood. The Irish lived in an Irish neighborhood. The Polish lived, the Jews all lived. It's, it's, it was all neighborhoods. You know, you grew up in a neighborhood. I grew up in an Italian neighborhood. Uh, the Irish kids grew up in an Irish neighborhood. The black kids grew up in a black neighborhood and they really never went to any dances. I mean, where the white kids were going. I'm sure they had their dances, but they all went to their own dances, you see. It was never it was never a situation where they would have been turned away. They just didn't come. Wow. Okay. So my next question is, you know, my my grandpeople used to talk about the Mitch Thomas show and Georgie Woods and all these other people. You grew up in that. You know those people. Right. Those were the guys that were playing the original black records, okay, on WHAT and WDAS. And I listened to those guys on radio because at that time, KYW, which was Westinghouse, was playing... Frank Sinatra, WPM was playing Perry Como. You couldn't hear that music. Rock and roll really didn't hit until 1955, 56, you see. And that's because of a record called Rock Around the Clock, which originally came out, if you look it up, I think in 54, 
by Bill Haley and the Comets. It was a mediocre hit because Bill Haley covered Shake, Rattle, and Roll. The original version was by Joe Turner. Uh, he, he covered Jump, Jump, Jump. Winona Harris had the original record of things of this, you know? So that record in 54 was the first. It did okay. But what happened a year later in 1955 or 56, I don't have the exact year, a motion picture came out called Blackboard Jungle. And in that picture, throughout the picture, they played Rock Around the Clock. And it became a number one record. That's when radio stations started to understand rock and roll. And they started to play the Pat Boone's Ain't It a Shame, Tweedledee Dee by Georgia Gibbs. Bob Horn was playing the original record, you see. That's the way that began. Wow. It was always the black jockeys that played the real deal. I'm glad you give credit to people knowing that. Now, my, one of my questions in reading the book, you mentioned Hank Ballard in the book. You mentioned Chevy Checker in the book. Well, Hank Ballard is the writer and the original recorder of the twist. Absolutely. What happened in... <laughs> where Chevy Checker comes into that whole thing. Didn't they think that Hank Ballard could sing his own song? Well, this is what happened. The record was on King Federal. The twist was the B side. The push side, the A side, was teardrops, tears on on my pillow. Not 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 little Anthony. It was teardrops on my pillow. Okay. That's the side that they were promoting. I played it a dance, the twist, and the kids started to do a little dance. Dick Clark found out that they were doing a dance, which he said to Chubby, Chubby, why don't you record this thing? You must understand, Bandstand was a dance show. So he created dances, the Bristol Stop, the Clark, the Mashed Potatoes, okay, the Cha-Cha, and Chubby did the twist. What happened is, the owner of the record label, Sid Nathan, called Dick Clark and said, you know, you're playing the twist. Dick said, yeah, but you gave me tear, tears teardrops on my pillow okay he said I'll tell you what and it became a hit to twist with Chubby but Hank wrote it so he made money from it anyway right. but Dick said to Sid Nathan give me your next release and don't worry about it the next release was a song called Finger Poppin' Time right and Dick Clark played it it became a hit for Hank Ballard everybody was happy Okay. All right, because I was just, I was wondering about that, because people, you know, Chubby, Chubby did popularize it, but Hank Ballard did it first. Yeah, but remember, the twist with Hank Ballard was a B-side, not the okay. A-side. So nobody exactly. was playing the twist until Chubby recorded it, and Dick Clark featured it on Bandstand, because it was a dance in your book, I like how you talked about Bob Horn. People um, always say, well, Dick Clark, Dick Clark, Dick Clark. You also mentioned Mitch Thomas. And, it, you know, I, I heard about that to my grandpeople. Can you yeah. talk about the, the bridge? What, Bob Horn was a mentor to you, and he really started bandstand, but you barely hear his name. Well, let me, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you, Mitch Thomas was the first black disc jockey to have a black dance show. He did it out of Wilmington. Okay? That's where all the mm -hmm. black kids would go to dance. Okay. Bob Horn, from 1952 to 1956, had bandstand. Right. In 1956, and he was the second father to me, I would go to his home on the weekends, because you got to understand, my father was never around. My right. father... Later on in my life, when I became successful, my father worked for me and was, you know, right there because I needed 
somebody to take care of my business along with my manager, Nat Sigal. So Bob Horn was a second father to me. I would spend summers with him in Stone Harbor on his boat. I would do the dances he had, the Carmen roller skating rink. And one night at the Carmen roller skating rink, there was a bar next door. And after the dance, if I was going to go to his home in Levittown, I would go with him and at the bar. He would be there for promotion men, and they would be drinking. And one night, I didn't go home with him. I went back to my home in South Philly, and he got arrested for drunken driving. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got arrested for drunk and drive in 1956. So they took him off bandstand. But my duties were still the same. I was told by the producer, Tony Marmorella, well, you've got to wait for the heat to die down. He kept bandstand radio, which was in the morning. He had bandstand radio and bandstand on TV. He was allowed to keep bandstand on radio. What happens, they come and they say, Bob's not coming back. We're going to introduce you to the new host, Dick Clark. Well, I have the, I'm the head of the committee. I said, we don't want Dick Clark. We want Bob Horn. He's the one who created it. He's the one, we felt it was an injustice. Dick Clark said to me, with the powers of WFIL, look, the show's going to go national in August. You were making $15 a week. We're going to give you $30 a week to do the same thing on a national scale. I said, no, I don't want the money. We want Bob Horn. So I went out. We got pickets. And there's a picture in the book. We got pickets and we picketed Bandstand, the studio, 46th Market. Now imagine... If nobody's going into dance, what are you going to do with a dance show? Next thing that happens, right before the show, the cops come, they arrest me, the pickets go down, and all of the kids go into bandstand. That was the end of my dancing career. This is 1956. Now, Dick Clark takes over everything that Bob Horn had. Bob Horn had a piece of a record company. He had a piece of a publishing thing. He did shows. Dick Clark now is national. And this is on a national scale. Dick Clark's got pressing plants. He owns publishing. He's doing shows across the country, tours across the country. And he has a record publishing company, a record called At The Hop, Danny and the Juniors. Well, Bob Horn's friend, partner, was Nat Sigal, who managed Gloria Mann, Sandy Stewart, later on the Dobells, Danny the Juniors, the Orlans. He had the group at the hop. We do the Patty Page show in New York, and then we got to do Dick Clark's Saturday night show called... Uh, Dick Clark's Saturday Night Beach Nut Gum Show. I bring Danny and the Juniors on there. Now, I haven't seen Dick Clark since I tried to pick at him. He sees me. I'm very courteous. He sees Jerry, how, how you been? How you doing? I'm doing, thank you, Mr. Clark. I'm doing great. He says, I understand you're the road manager for Danny and the Juniors. I said, yes, I am. Fine. As a matter of fact, there's a picture with me because one of the kids was missing when we were supposed to take a picture with Dick Clark for Photoplay magazine. So I became one of the juniors next to Dick Clark with Danny Rapp, Joe Turnover, and Frank Maffei. The next morning after the show, I got to go back to Philadelphia. I'm taking, I get to Pennsylvania Station to get on the train. Who's getting on the train? Dick Clark. I see him. He says, Jerry, sit down. I want to talk to you. I figured, uh-oh. I know he's got the publishing of bandstands. I mean, at the hop. I know he's got... He knows I'm the road manager. Maybe he's going to figure, because I tried to pick at him, he's going to fire me. Which he could have. He could have said to the record company, Jerry Blavitt should not be the road manager. If he, if he were vindicative. 
So he says, I want to talk to you. He says, you know, I never told you this. He said, try to picket me. You, want the, you don't want the kids to come in. You want the bar back. He said, that didn't happen. He said, I own everything the Bob had now on a national scale. He said, I'm telling you that because I want you to know that I know if I lose bandstand today like Bob did and some other host comes in, all of the people that were with me will go to the new guy just like all of the record deals when Bob lost the show went to me. He said, I got to respect your loyalty that you stood by Bob Horn. You were the most popular kid. You could have got $30 a week for the show, and he didn't. He said, I just wanted to tell you that. When we got off the train in 1957, I said, Dick, you now have my loyalty because you understood what Bob meant to me. And my friendship with Dick Clark began that day to the day he died when I flew out to the coach for his memorial, all right, which was several years ago. And when I went on the road, I worked with Danny as I was the road manager of the juniors, but I worked with Chuck Berry and Fats Domino and Paul Anker. You know, we would do the bus tours. You get right. on bus from New York and we would go from city to city. Now, when I got off one of the tours, you go back to South Philly, and there was a dice game, a crap game. And in the meantime, by the way, to make more money, I also did promotion with promoting records, where I would go to the radio stations, the black guys, and WIBG and promote records. I would get maybe $50 a week to promote a record for four weeks. And so I was pretty savvy about radio, listening to it and seeing how it worked in a studio. So when I got into this dice game, one of the guys' name was Dom Pinto. And he owned a club in South Philadelphia called the Venus Lounge. And they were talking about, you know, listen, I got the lounge, I would like to do something on a Monday, I'd like to do a radio show, blah, blah, blah. And one of the older wise guys said, well, you know, how about Blavitt? He can do it. And he said that sarcastically. And I said, yeah, I could do it. Don Pinto said, what the hell do you know about doing radio? I said, I know radio. I go into the radio stations around the country with Danny and the Juniors. I promote records. I know radio. He said, forget about it. I said, I'll tell you what. I had the dice in my hand. I said, if I hit my number at six, you let me do a radio show. He said, you'll never, you're not that lucky. You'll never hit the number. One pass, two pass, third pass, I hit the number. He says, holy shit. All right. Go do it. Get me a radio show. I went up to WCAM in Camden, which was a city-owned station where you can buy time. They had the Puerto Rican hour. They had the gospel hour. They had the Italian hour. They had the Ukrainian hour. So I went up, and I bought an hour's worth of time. And I did it from his club, a talk show. And all of the artists that were coming to town that worked with Danny the Juniors and me when I was the road manager would come on the show. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was also running dances in South Philadelphia for all of the kids at a place called the Dixon House. This is all in the book, by the way. So what happened is that a snowstorm hit. They closed the club. But I owned the time because I went out and sold my own sponsors. And I kept, wow. okay. I kept the money from the sponsors. He paid for the radio show, but I owned the money from the sponsors. I had four sponsors. I charged them $60 a 15-minute segment. $240 I was making. <laughs> so I had to take care of the sponsors. So I went up with the kids. We shoveled out of the snow, took my records that I bought, records that I collected when I danced on bandstands and I started to play this what happened the snow it was a tremendous snowstorm I didn't get out of there till maybe 1 o'clock now remember we were on from 10 o'clock to 11 but I didn't get out till, until relief came the phones lit up kids were surfing the dial to find out if the schools were closed 
And all of a sudden, they're hearing Frankie Lyman, they're hearing the Cleptones, they're hearing Little Richard, they're hearing Jerry Lee Lewis, they're hearing Fats Domino. These are record hits that I danced to. Now, this is 1960. These records were gone by that time. They were mm-hmm. considered oldies. That's what I call them, oldies. Nobody was playing that. To the kids that were listening, it was brand new to them. You, uh, you, can you understand what I'm saying? Yes. It was brand new. And that's how it began. That's how it began. I have a question. You mentioned Danny and the Juniors, but they weren't the original um, people on what became with uh, a cameo and Parkway. They were two different entities. When did they join? And okay. what's the story behind that? Danny and the Juniors recorded on a local label called Singular. Cameo Parkway was Chubby Checker, the Dovells, Dee Dee Sharp, uh, the Orleans. Uh, Singular Records was a little label owned by Artie Singer, a vocal coach. And the record originally was called Do the Bop. Dick Clark heard it. He said, no, what do you mean do the bop? Changed the lyric to at the hop. He played it on the singular label. It was an instant smash for the kids doing the bop at the hop. ABC Paramount, bandstand was ABC Network. They saw how important the Clark show was, and they started a label called ABC Paramount. They bought all of the songs that Danny and the Juniors had. At the Hop, Rock Around the Clock, Dottie, the B-Sides, they bought everything. Chancellor was another local label owned by Bobby Marcucci. He had Frankie Avalon, he had Fabian, he had uh, uh, a couple of other insignificant people. But it was all Dick Clark that made all these little labels. It was Dick Clark. Dick Clark had a piece of everything, which was nothing wow. wrong. At that time, disc jockeys, every disc jockey, Jocko had mainline records. Kay Williams had his own record label. Georgie Woods had his own record label. Jimmy Bishop had his own record label. So that's the way it was back then. Hmm. That's, that's fascinating that... Uh <laughs> that, that, that's an interesting dynamic. Now, Alan Freed was in there some way, somehow. Oh, look, um, these Alan, are just names that you know, Alan we read had, about. Alan had everything. Alan had publishing pieces of the records. He had everything because he was the guy in New York. He was the first white disc jockey to play black music. And when Dick Clark started to play the original records... The majors did not have time to go into their studio and cover with their artist. So all of a sudden, you've got Dion of the Belmonts, you, you've got Buddy Holly, you've got Paul Anka, and Alan Freed is now putting them on these big shows in New York City. The Fox Paramount, the Brooklyn Paramount, you know. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, the shows... Uh, you mentioned that uh, shows and hops were very, very popular. Um, <laughs> the, the thought of teenagers actually getting together, dancing, and having fun, you're talking about a totally, totally different era. I want to ask you this. In your growing up, and probably many others of the time, uh, parents uh, had respect and or step-parents and or people who were uh, second fathers or mothers Tell us about the moral issues back in that day. And I don't mean, you know, people getting in trouble, but the kids. It's a total different thing today. Even school violence and all kind of stuff that just wouldn't happen back then. What do you think happened and what was it like? Tell our listeners about that. Let me that. say something. Back then, when you went to school, you had to dress properly. There were rules and regulations in school. When these kids went to a dance... And the parents trusted me because they knew that I was, I was 100%. Even though the music they may not have understood, but the kids had to be home at a certain time. There were rules and regulations for kids growing up at that time. 
And as I said, the music spoke. The music brought kids together. When I was doing my dances, 2,000 kids, I brought these kids from every different neighborhood. And Wagner's Ballroom had black and white dancing. You see. So I, by the grace of God, I was the one that was able to bring kids together. Because I looked like a kid, I spoke like a kid, I danced like a kid. So they related to me. Because I was young. I was, what, 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Wow. And today, today, there are no rules. The music today is derogatory. The music is disrespectful, derogatory, and the artists have no consideration of the fact that they are the ones, because these kids look up to them, that should be the true... I mean, I had a responsibility. I would, I, I would do nothing wrong. You know, these artists don't realize they have a responsibility because these kids look up to them. You know. That makes sense. That, that does make sense. Because when you look at some of the... I, I, I actually study up on not only your show, the Discophonic. I mean, there's a certain way of dressing and a certain way of being. And it seems like even at a very young age, people were dressing what we would consider Sunday best, but they were doing that on a regular basis. You were talking about uh, your radio, and then you eventually went on to TV. The television. Yes. And um, I first heard the name Geeter on a Monkeys episode I was watching. Yeah, I did. I did. an older relative. And I said, what's a Geeter? And uh, that's when I became interested. I was like, okay, you can do this. Gary Glavitt. And I said, okay, Jerry, so I was looking at you in the brand that you were able to build. You probably didn't know you were doing it in the 50s or the 60s. But that's what we call today branding. You're branding your your niche. Well, niche. By the great- you, weren't, you weren't even thinking about that at that time. No, I just, see, this is, this is where the Native American Indian came in. No one, I would allow no one to dictate to me to play the music that I loved, that I wanted to share. Format radio came in and took away the disc jockey's ability to play music and share it. Back then, disc jockeys played what the program director told them to play. How the discophonic TV scene happened, and I was always considered the rebel jock. WIBG was the number one station, 50,000 watts. I was on a 250-watt station, and what would happen is the guys, before I came along, would be doing maybe 700 kids at a dance. When I came along, on a little cockamamie station, I was doing 1,000 kids, and they were only doing 200 kids. So they really didn't like me because they couldn't figure out. We're on a number one station, and this guy's on a little station in Camden, but the kids identified with me and what I was doing. Right. And I got an offer when I became big on TV to go on WIBG. And Joe Conway, it's in the book, said, we'll pay you like $35,000 a year, but we don't want the Geeter. We want you to be Jerry Glavitt and play what we tell you to play. I said, that's not going to happen. So what do you mean? I said, I make $125,000, me being me. And I turned that down. And how the TV show began the TV show is because of my friend Dick Clark. <clears throat> when Dick was leaving, I believe in 62 or 63, it was 62, there was a party at the Venus Lounge. That's the same place where I did the radio show from originally. And it was a farewell party. And Dick said to, uh, at that time, uh, Lou Klein, who was program director at WFIL, uh, listen, you know, now that I'm leaving, you should talk to, talk to Jerry about maybe doing a pilot because you're going to need something to fill maybe a Saturday afternoon show. Because before that, I also was doing a show on TV called Aquarama with Ed Hurst. Okay. 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 So Luke Klein said, okay, make a pilot. This was in, this is, yeah, exactly. This is 19... Yeah, this is right before 1965. So I go and I make a pilot, and I used the uh, the 
people from Channel 10, which was CBS. All right, I paid them independently, and I made a pilot, gave it to Lou Klein in probably November of that year, 64, and I don't hear anything. So I figure, what's well, a dead issue? December of that 64, I get a call from Channel 10, and they say, we're very interested in you doing a show for us. We, see, we saw the pilot. Our people showed it to us. They said, can you come for a meeting? I said, yeah. When I went to the meeting, they said, we didn't like the pilot, but we like you. If you were to do your own dance show, how would you do it? I said, well, first of all, I'm not going to stand behind a podium. I'm going to be on a riser, and I want to dance with the kids throughout the entire show. They said, wow, that's interesting. And they said, what about the guest stars? I said, the guest stars will be from the start to the finish on risers, picking up the excitement. Very interesting. Were you going to have them lip sync? No. They've got to come in with their tracks, or we're going to do it live. I want this show, whatever the time is going to be, to vibrate from the moment it starts to the moment it ends with the artist being a part of the kids, me being a part of the kids, dressed like a kid and doing it. They said, wow, what would you call it? I said, they're going to dance the records. It's the disc. It's going to be the sound of excitement. The discophonic scene. They said, let's try it. We'll give you 13 weeks. After the second week, the show was completely sold out. Lip Brothers and Mountain Dew. That after the third week, it went to an hour, and then it became completely sold out. Then I went to New York, and I syndicated it with Seven Arts, which is in the book. So now, beside being radio... People are seeing what I do at the dances and that I'm a part of the now generation, which we created with Pepsi-Cola. Awesome. Awesome. Now, today, even, you, you, you have your radio stations today, and you also have memories, and, you know, you've been able to expand this brand throughout the decades, or 60 years later. So I was reading in the book, you said in the 70s, you were able to grow in a different way, 80s, 90s. You're, you're, you're still growing. And I'm just wondering, what do you see for yourself for the future? You always are able to expand your brand and keep an audience. And they're there also to see you. It's not just the music. They're there to see also you. You became a part of that culture that's grown. And now you got me a millennial. I'm interested in you. And we're talking to a whole mess of millennials and post-millennials as we speak. I have over 2 million people listening to me on a regular basis. Um, you're still here. You look young, you're vibrant, you're doing great things. What what do you see for yourself uh, going into 2020? It's, first of all, I've been blessed by the man upstairs that I, and I learned at an early age to admire and look at performers and talented people. They became my friends in show business. Frankie Valley, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, Aretha Franklin. I not only played their music, but I was a friend to them on a personal basis. And I never considered myself to be a disc jockey. I considered myself to be an entertainer and do whatever I have to do to please that audience. Music is universal. Music is what I do. Music is the thing that brings me together with the audience, young or old. Kids today in their 20s or 30s could hear Run Around Sue for the first time, sing it, dance to it. They can do the twist today, young people. So I have all ages because I never stopped doing what I originally wanted to do, play music, Make people happy, 
take them away for a while. And as long as I'm healthy, I will continue. When I can't do it anymore, health-wise, then I'll stop. And when they stop coming to see me, then I know I'm doing something wrong. Well, this has been really enlightening. I really uh, appreciate you being on the show. And um, into 2020, I know you're doing stuff with the Kimmel Center. Do you see that expanding? Oh, my God. This show that we're going to do in January will be my 40th show. Wow. Now, I'm going to send you some pictures. Uh, of I just did a show with over 7,000 people. You'll see that. Uh, I just came from... Uh, we're going to open up the Hard Rock Casino in Atlantic City. June the 28th. Wow. Yep. When is it? Yes, yes. The Hard Rock Casino. Opening up. What, what is the date? June the 28th. On wow. A, we're going to open that up uh, with a live broadcast. Uh, so I, I've been able to do all of this, you know, by the grace of God, because of the freedom. Because of the freedom. And music is universal. I could play an oldie from 1956. Shout, but the Isleys, 1959, and kids will dance to it. Not not only kids, older people. I, I might, I just might be. Stevie Van Zandt said, and you see in the book, he said the Gator is the last disc jockey. They're no longer disc jockeys. Sadly, right. Sadly, and you're right. You are an entertainer. I, I like. I saw some of the footage. Um, not only of you, of you on episodic television, but with your own group, and you just look like. But just what you said, you blend it in with the audience, but you look like you were having fun and they were having fun. Well, That's I, what it's about. I think hopefully I might be an inspiration for the audience that grew up that say, look, the Gator looks good. He's got aches and pains. You never know he's got aches and pains. He's got medical issues. You never know about that. Because that's not what they come to see. They come for me to take them away from their aches and pains and their everyday problems and dance and have fun. My club, I'm going to send you pictures. You will not believe if you go online. What is it, Memories, Carol? Yes. Yeah, go, go, yeah, Facebook. Go on Facebook to Memories. And you will see a whole young audience dancing and partying with the Gator. So... That's where that's where it's at. That's where it's at. 